Raises the troops. I have absolutely no doubt, wherever I've gone in the world, that people understand that UK armed forces represent the best of this country. The UN gets down to business. Why is there still racism in the army? And Britain's second aircraft carrier off on sea trials. Last night, more than 50 members of the armed forces attended a reception at 10 Downing Street where they met the Prime Minister, his girlfriend and his puppy. Here's some of what he had to say. I I have absolutely no doubt, wherever I've gone in the world, that people understand that UK armed forces represent the best of this country, the best of all four nations of this country working together, because that is what you incarnate. You represent the UK around the world, the the four flags that are represented in that union flag. And by goodness, it is respected, admired, loved, and uh, people want to see your presence, uh, believe me. And that goes also, of course, uh, for Commonwealth, uh, Commonwealth members as well. And it's because I understand the huge value to this country of our armed services that we're doing two things. Number one, a new Ministry for Veterans Affairs, led by uh, Johnny Mercer, looking particularly suave tonight, uh, who is uh, going to be uh, running that. And and Johnny has been campaigning on this for years and years and years. I'm very proud to be working with him to fulfil what I think has been a a long-standing ambition of his. And it is absolutely right that nobody should be penalised in their life after serving in the armed forces for their time serving Queen and country. So that is what we're going to do uh, with the Ministry for for Veterans Affairs. And possibly even uh, more immediate than that, we are investing more in our armed forces. And you will have noticed, I hope, that the the, the Secretary of State for Defence, who I think is also here, there he is, uh, uh, Ben Wallace, managed to wrestle a very considerable sum out of the Treasury in the recent spending round. And I'm delighted that as a result of that, uh, we will now be able to proceed with uh, not just with the, uh, the F-35s and, uh, and, and various cyber programs, of course, but with the, with the Type 31 frigates, uh, the, the new uh, Type 31 frigates, and I believe passionately in investing in shipbuilding. We are a great maritime country. Well, today the Prime Minister has been meeting defence chiefs to talk about investment and modernisation. Well, former defence editor at The Times, Mike Evans, joins me along with Christopher Lee, our defence analyst. Hello to both of you. Uh, Mike, what, what do you think of what you just heard? Um, well, first of all, I think, you know, anyone who is enthusiastic about spending money on defence, that's good news for the armed forces. Um, Boris Johnson clearly is enthusiastic, and I'm sure he means what he says. There will obviously be you know, trouble ahead for him uh, with the Treasury because uh, the Ministry of Defence has actually never got the money it really wants. For the last sort of 10 years, there's always been a, fall, a sort of uh, a, a gap, and they, they do have a huge a black hole in their, in their, uh, in their income. But uh, th- that he's singled out things like the Type 20, uh, 31 frigate, uh, and I think that's excellent because now that uh, we are progressing towards having an aircraft carrier on the high seas once again, uh, preferably uh, with uh, aircraft uh, soon enough in the next couple of years, 
uh, it will be vital that, that we have the mm. warship escorts to go with it. So I think his enthusiasm for that particular uh, programme uh, is, uh, is good and should be welcomed. But you do wonder, don't you, whether how much of this is spin? Because when the announcements were made about the money for the Ministry of Defence, there were question marks out about, about how much of it really was new money. Well, I think that's absolutely right. In the game of defence spending, there's always mirrors and inevitably they will not get everything they want and they will have to make some strategic decisions about what sort of defence policy they want. We've had so many of these reviews over the years, but another one will be necessary. And I'm sure there won't be the sort of money that they want and there probably won't be the sort of money that the NHS wants. But nevertheless, the Prime Minister has put this as one of his priorities and that's got to be good news. Mm, Christopher Lee, does Boris Johnson know what he's talking about, do you think? Did he sound well briefed? He didn't sound well briefed but he sounded enthusiastic and it's the task of the I suppose the the three services um, um, plus the minister to actually keep it up, keep, keep that enthusiasm going. But at the end of the day it's the Chief Secretary of the Treasury it's the, as Mike says, it's the, it's the uh, Chancellor. They're the guys that matter. And also within the Prime Minister's department uh, is what you do with the idea of having a separate defence analysis team. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, a couple of things. I mean, he's saying there's a new, min- new ministry for Veterans uh, Affairs. Veterans Affairs. Uh, I'm not sure there is. Hmm. What there is is a minister. And the minister is a, a junior minister in the Defence Department anyway. And so they said, well, you better look after that. But it's the fact that he's doing it is very important. But, you know, when, when the uh, service is so old, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult. I mean, when you think about it, it's the F-35 for the uh, RAF. It's slow, it's taking its time, and there have been problems. It's getting new, brilliant airplanes. Um, later, in very short time... Uh, the second aircraft carrier, Prince of Wales, will be going to sea probably to do its sea trials. T- tell me another, tell me another navy that's got two aircraft carriers in this modern state. I mean, there ain't one. I don't think. I mean, the Russians haven't even got one. Um, then there's the renewal of Trident as an independent uh, 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 nuclear system. There's the Type Thirty One uh, frigate, and there's the Type Twenty Six. The army was getting very well reorganised by what was when he was Chief of the General Staff, now the Chief of Defence Staff, General Nick Carter. It's only the thing that's holding that up is the fact that people don't want to join the army. And so he hasn't got the manpower to do all that, make all those changes. So the, the state of the services is not so bad as sometimes you will hear. Mm. Gentlemen, stay with us. The 74th session of the United Nations General Assembly began this week. So what are going to be the things to look out for? Nick Harper is in New York for Feature Story News. Uh, Nick, next week is the start of the major foreign policy speeches, including President Trump and Prime Minister Boris Johnson. They both have the same big subjects to attack, uh, Iran, Brexit, it, Yemen, China for starters. That's right, Kate. Yeah, and certainly those are for starters because this is an opportunity for every single world leader or uh, high-ranking minister to address not just the General Assembly Hall here at the United Nations, but really speak to the whole of the world. It's a chance for them uh, to lay out their achievements over the last year, but also importantly to talk about their concerns. So yes, we're likely to see some attacking words from both of those leaders. Uh, remember, we often see some very inflammatory comments here. A couple of years ago, Donald Trump 
uh, speaking for the first time in 2017 to the General Assembly, talked about North Korea, saying that Kim Jong-un was on a suicide mission, warning that the US would totally destroy it. Things have changed a bit in the last couple of years between those two countries. But of course, President Trump will be on the attack, especially when it comes to Iran and China. Prime Minister Boris Johnson probably looking to appeal for some cooperation over Brexit. And we're likely to see that tug of war that we see every year between multilateralism and nationalism. The UN very much all about multilateralism. Uh, some of the world leaders, President Trump in particular, much more about a nationalistic approach to affairs. Anything else you think might be coming up that we should look out for? Well, certainly climate change is the big one. On Monday, we've got the Climate Action Summit. Uh, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has told world leaders to come with concrete plans, not beautiful speeches. It's really a chance to bring the world leaders together to try and uh, come up with some new guidelines for emissions to try and limit rising temperatures to one and a half degrees Celsius. Uh, President Trump, interestingly, is not attending that summit on Monday. We'll also see a big day of action on Friday, uh, when there will be global climate strikes here in New York, but also around the world. And nuclear weapons, also another one to watch. There's a high-level meeting next Thursday looking at nuclear disarmament. And I guess one that a lot of people here at the UN will be keeping an eye on uh, will be whether or not President Trump and President Hassan Rouhani of Iran meet. Back mm. in 2017, they did this dance of will they, won't they meet. They didn't. They probably won't meet this year either, especially as at this stage, the US is still yet to issue a visa to Hassan Rouhani, actually allowing him into the United States. Yes, yeah, so we'll be talking about those relations in a moment. Uh, but uh, is there a formal ending to the General Assembly? Well, this high-level session goes on for two weeks. We have two weeks of speeches and summit. Comes to a close on Monday, the 30th of September. But really, the General Assembly is a year-long thing. It runs from September to September. They have a very ambitious agenda through the course of that year. Some of the main things they want to focus on uh, during the next 12 months include poverty eradication, uh, trying to increase education uh, quality around the world, and, of course, looking at climate action as well. So the General Assembly is the whole world, but the real power is with the Security Council. That's right, isn't it? It really is. I mean, that's the main body in the world when it comes to peace and security, because we have 193 countries who are members of the UN, but it's this 15-member Security Council that really makes the difference. Uh, Ten of those get voted onto the council. They serve a two-year term, but it's really the main power that lies with the so-called Permanent Five, the mm. UK France, Russia, China and the US, because they have the chance to veto any resolutions that come up before the Security Council, things like Syria, North Korea. They also get really the final say in recommending the UN Secretary General uh, putting a name forward that then the whole 193 uh, member body gets to vote on. So, yeah, the power very much lies with the Security Council. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here in the studio. I was thinking, Nick, it, it, there is a tendency at the moment, well, it has been for about two years now, to wonder whether the Security Council should change its sort of tapestry and have, for example, Germany as a, as a permanent member. Um, is that any likely that goes anywhere? Well, that's right, Christopher. I mean, it's something that has been discussed 
more fervently over the last couple of years, but really the last couple of decades we've had countries, uh, the likes of Japan, Brazil, saying, look, we're big enough to have a seat at the table, please let us on. Of course, the permanent five get the final say as to whether other countries join. France and UK probably don't want another European on there. China definitely doesn't want Japan trying to get uh, access, an exclusive access, uh, a permanent seat at the table is very difficult. Uh, it's something, though, that many countries do want. All right, Nick Harper from Future Story News. Enjoy it. Thank you very much for your time. Well, let's talk more now about that tension between Iran and the US. Yesterday, Saudi Arabia's defence ministry showed off what it says is the wreckage of drones and cruise missiles. It says this proves that Iran was involved in the weekend attacks on two of their oil facilities. Well, Mike Evans, former defence editor and Pentagon correspondent for The Times, is still here. And Dan Plesch, director of the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy at SOAS, the University of London, also joins us. Um, first to you, Christopher, though. Put this in perspective. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said it was an act of war. The Pentagon says the drone was Iranian. Simple as that? It isn't. Uh, an act of war... Uh, as far as America is concerned, uh, gives the impression that it was an act of war against the United States or United States policy. Well, that's not true. Um, no American, uh, no American facility, no Americans were killed in in in, in this drone, drone attack, and it's so it is not an act of war in that sense. And so, in theory, the, the president of the United States is not going to go along and attack necessarily uh, Iran militarily attack Iran because nobody's being killed on their side. The second part of it is that they say, well, this is the hint or the suggestion is that the the, the drone uh, must have come from Iran because it's an Iranian-made drone. Well, you could actually say there's a heck of, for example, there's a heck of a lot of uh, British um, uh, military hardware in Saudi Arabia but when it's used in against Yemen, it's not Britain that's using it. In other words, that drone could have been shipped mm. out to the people in Yemen or any, anybody else. All right, Dan Plesh, um, good to speak to you today. Do you think Iran was behind this? Um, I think it's uh, hard to say. Certainly the uh, Iranians have uh, made certain statements to uh, Saudi Arabia indicating that this should be a warning to them to scale back their do what they're doing in uh, Yemen. But they're, frankly, they're uh, rather too... Uh, uh, sophisticated to leave their fingerprints uh, on this, even if it was them. But it, what it does point to is uh, a continuing escalation with no uh, de-escalation, let alone arms control or confidence-building strategy at all. And I think when you look at uh, what uh, the European Union is being brought in, Germany sending, sending naval vessels, there are none of the... Um, tension-reducing mechanisms that we did use so successfully to keep the Cold War cold and in the end to end it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the very depressing uh, and frightening characteristics that we are all too often sending our uh, armed forces into harm's way without having exhausted uh, other opportunities. I suppose also what is quite striking is that Saudi Arabia wasn't able and didn't prevent this attack. Well, there will be uh, you know, a lot of uh, red faces and hopefully people won't be executed as a result. But uh, frankly, there's a lot of uh, hysteria about drones, but these are small, low-flying objects that you, if you have the right radar and the right kit, should be blown out of the sky a bit like you know, shooting partridges. 
um, they're not exactly fast or you know that concealed but because it's a bit like the being a shortage of minesweepers but because the money and the glamour is in a high-tech kit um, the attention isn't sufficiently given to these small close-quarter uh, threats and it's clear that what the Saudis had uh, is was pointed in the wrong direction uh, and if I may say it does point though also to the extreme fragility the brittleness of the the Saudi regime it's reliant upon mercenaries it's uh, one might say some of whom are British and American to keep its forces moving to keep its kit in the air it has very little capacity itself and this is a very very brittle country whereas Iran is a much more popular integrated society like it or not and I think in the in the match between the two this is not sufficiently given attention. Mm. Uh, Mike Evans you've suggested this attack may well have been a deliberate attempt by Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps to upset relations between the US and Iran ahead of the UN General Assembly. Um, I mean, I think there's all, all kinds of things are possible here. Uh, it's not yet clear, despite uh, comments made in Washington a couple of days ago. I don't think it is absolutely clear yet from which direction these uh, drones and, by the way, cruise missiles. Remember, they were coming in under the cover of drones, if you like. It's not absolutely sure because these, by their very nature, these uh, flying munitions can change direction and can go round and find somewhere where they can get in through past air defences, etc. So it's quite difficult to track them. It's not like a ballistic missile which has a certain trajectory and you can follow it from A to B. Uh, so I think it is difficult and I think there are all kinds of uh, possible plots behind this particular attack. What worries me is that although everyone is, a lot of people are now saying well it probably did come from the Houthis, Houthi rebels in Yemen. In fact this was a they weren't sophisticated weapons, but it was a sophisticatedly, uh, sophisticatedly coordinated. It was very well coordinated. There's no question about that. So although they, although they didn't kill a mass of people, they did, they did do what they were intended to do, which was cause supreme damage. And although Christopher is right to say that uh, the attack on the Saudi oil plants well, it meant it, it, it wasn't in U.S. interest because no Americans were killed. Actually, the, the, the flow of oil around the world is, a, is of major strategic importance. And even though America is no longer reliant on Middle East oil, uh, the world is, and it's in, in U.S. interest to keep it flowing. And any sort mm. of attack from any direction uh, that damages that uh, is is something which Washington needs to take into account. It's interesting that... Very, the, sorry, it's interesting that uh, last time there was a problem with over Iran like this is that, uh, is that President, President Trump made a big thing about uh, how America could attack Iran and then pulled back and said, maybe we won't do that after all and we will talk about getting at people's bank accounts and uh, etc. And it's the same sort of thing that seems to have happened at the moment. I mean, you have this idea of that oh, it's an act of war and getting very, very military about the whole thing. Now they're going after the bank accounts again. Mm -hmm. um, and the, that leads you to another effort, uh, <clears throat> and that's to look how much this is very much of a decision of the Revolutionary Guards Corps. Uh, mm. Guards. Dan Plesch. Uh, well, I, 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 we could keep look, looking at the tactical side here, but from the point of view of grand strategy, uh, there is a connection, a fundamental connection here with climate change, that, that we carry on producing the oil, we continue to create a climate crisis, but if we actually had the kind of the wit that Winston Churchill did when he moved the British Navy from coal to oil, uh, you know, around the turn of the last century, 
we would say actually there is a military national security reason to get out of oil and into electric and the the green economy because in that way we don't have to worry about the middle east if we are actually now accelerating the move into electric transportation then the uh, the imperative to control and fight over these resources goes away yes oil will be important always but not the the critical way it is dealt with today and if you look at the huge human financial cost and military cost that we pour in year after year, decade after decade, into what you know is called Gulf security, really Gulf insecurity, and you look about transferring that strategic investment into the green economy, then actually you will get two um, hugely beneficial policy re- results. And I think we need to have uh, global strategists who are capable of thinking at that level and not continuing running after tactical ball watching like this, mm. you know, and watching the, the Gulf continuing uh, month by month, year by year, uh, descend into more and more military turmoil. There are strategic alternatives, and the people who had the vision to create the United Nations in the first place, those leaders, Churchill, Roosevelt, would have had the strategic vision to make this kind of shift today. But it's impossible almost to have the debate about moving from um, out of oil for military and security reasons as well as climate reasons. It's quite interesting to see how, how difficult it is for leaders to respond to something like this because there's the extreme response which could be, let's say, a military retaliation. It's the sort of thing... That, that you look at Mr. Trump and you think, you're not getting it, are you? You're not getting well briefed. You know, he's getting uh, a new national security advisor, for example. Um, and he's got a hell of a lot to, to actually explain to Mr. I, I, Trump. I, I, it, I think it's very touching, Christopher, that you think Mr. Trump is interested and capable of understanding anything at that level. <laughs> but I think his instincts, though, are actually, while he wants to thump his chest... Um, he actually has instincts against getting into more foreign wars because his base, he knows this, his base are not keen on more Vietnams, more Afghanistans, more Iraqs. And that has been a, a, a touchstone of his thinking going back for 30 or 40 years. But right now, I think he's driven by you know, much more short-term narcissistic concerns than waiting to get another a new brief. It is, though, I think, telling that uh, John Bolton and uh, hopefully some of his even more bellicose staff are going, and he's brought in a rather quieter negotiator because Bolton, I think, was the one itching uh, to get the finger tr- triggered uh, on on Iran mm. and actually failed in what is frankly his and, lifelong objective. Yeah. And now we have Robert O'Brien. We'll have to talk about that Can new na- national. Very Sorry. very quickly. Very quickly. Please, Mike, uh, nice to talk. Nice to talk to you again, Mike. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, very quick thing. Um, I think the departure of Bolton and Trump's clear. Uh, strategy of not wanting to get involved in any other foreign wars, particularly in the Middle East, uh, is also uh, handing something on a plate to people like Iran, because Iran sees the weakness. And I think if if Iran was behind this attack in Saudi Arabia, if it's proven, uh, I'm sure there will be clever people in Tehran who probably thought to themselves, 
we can do this and get away with it because Trump is not going to attack us. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Dan Plesh, thank you, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, now, an employment judge has ruled two former paratroopers were subjected to highly offensive racial harassment in the army. Nkulu Leku Zulu and Hani Gu alleged they, were su- they suffered racial discrimination and harassment. A tribunal heard how a swastika, a Hitler moustache and offensive words were scribbled across personal photographs at their barracks. Well, the judge's ruling said the MOD failed to take all reasonable steps to prevent such harassment. Uh, Mike Evans, you spent time with the paras. Um, No one has yet found a way of stopping what appears to be racial assaults in the army. Why is that? It is very troubling, isn't it, that you come across these cases. I mean, it is obviously completely unacceptable and terrible. But I have to say, you know, the paras are not like a big, giant, happy family. The paras are a tough bunch. They're, they're, and they're, they should be, shouldn't they? And, they? and they've got to be. They're trained to be tough and they are tough. And, you know, there are a lot more women now in the army and, that, and I'm totally support that. But basically the army and like the Marines too are a macho bunch. They are very tough. And people, not, not uh, necessarily uh, uh, ethnic uh, soldiers, but all kinds of people, whether they've got ginger hair or whether they're too short or too tall or whatever, they all get teased. This is on a different level, and I think it's extraordinary that today we still have cases where people who, who make the courageous decision to join the armed forces, and to join the army, then find that they get ribbed and then basically abused by these appalling sort of racist things. So it does disturb me, and I think, you know, the MOD, quite rightly, has, has been, for years has been saying, the army's been saying for years, mm. that they have zero tolerance, tolerance yeah, for this yeah. sort of thing, but it still goes on. Yeah. And, the, and the fact is that the unit, small unit level, people have to take responsibility for these things. And why should these two guys have to take the MOD to court for it when it should have been dealt with immediately by their unit commanders. Yeah, you, you mentioned about the, I mean, the MOD in response has said, as a modern and inclusive employer, the armed forces do not tolerate unacceptable behaviour in any form. Any allegations of inappropriate behaviour are taken extremely seriously and investigated thoroughly. So, Christopher, they don't tolerate it, but it still happens. This is not strictly a military thing, is it? Um, it's not only a military thing. The army lives in a different society, different, has different attitudes, uh, has different nicknames, different procedures, different things that it does, without the necessarily the sinister part of it that you would find in, in, in civilian life. It's interesting, isn't it, that one of the biggest problems in, in, in Premier Division football is racial discrimination at a very highest level among, among high players mm. in dressing rooms. And it's like that in rugby. It's like that in cricket. It's like that in things that you look and say, that shouldn't be happening in, thing, in places like that. And I, can't, I can remember talking to quite a load of you know, some commanding officers of, uh, of, of battalions who say this is a problem, but it is our problem because we are those sort of people. Mike Evans, uh, reading around this, uh, this particular case, um, I think banter was mentioned as sort of being the reason, it being passed off as banter. And, and you very often when you, when you hear about people who leave the forces, they talk about the banter of the forces. But, I mean, it should really be judged, shouldn't it, the, the way that everyone else judges uh, the wrong kind of comments made in civilian society? Well, of course, absolutely right. And, and the armed forces should reflect society uh, in, uh, as much as they can. And the trouble is, as Christopher points out, there is racism in society as well. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, banter's fine, uh, but there's a huge difference between banter and racist abuse or sexist abuse. 
and and it, it I, I don't care whether it goes on in I do care, but I, it, okay, it goes on in civilian life. But in the armed forces, people join the armed forces and get trained to uh, amazing discipline to mm. basically do things that are on behalf of this country. And it, it is absolutely crucial that people who get recruited and join the forces, particularly from ethnic minorities, that they are welcomed and that they are uh, given the respect which they deserve. And that is still not the case, which I find very disturbing. All right, Mike Evans, it's good to speak to you today. Thank you for your time today. Uh, Christopher, finally this week, HMS Prince of Wales, due to start sea trials. Indeed, good. The Navy's got uh, two big ships at sea. Uh, and uh, what happens is that the Prince of Wales has done all its uh, shoreside development of putting all the bits and pieces, first and foremost joining all the parts together, then putting all the gear on board, and now it comes to the big test. Uh, it's a bit like doing, on, on a very grand scale, sort of testing a motor car. Uh, they're going to put this, the ship goes to sea, and with it, not just the testing of the equipment that you would expect them to run through, you know, everything from sort of how to tie the ship up, how to let it go, how to let it go in different tides, etc. But all the electronic, how 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 to work with other ships. How long will the sea but trials al- last? But also the people, the people are tested thoroughly uh, from the from the from the commanding officer down. Now the importance of all this is that you can get all this, you can get it top notch, and the ship sort of turns to and it does its sea trials, and they say it's a damn good ship, and it's handed over for operational duties. And what happens? Just as happened with the, with with the other the carrier, it suddenly starts to fill up with water because there's a hole in a, in the joint or there's a bend in one of the joints, and these are the things that you never know, and these are the things that you're going to do all the time. In fact, a ship for its 25, 30 years of life is always on sea trials. So there's the answer to my question: the sea trials will last forever. <laughs> Well, my thanks to all of our guests. That's all we have time for this week. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode? Just search for BFBS SITREP. I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back same time next week. But for now, have a good week. Bye-bye.